It's time for the Alien Conspiracy Podcast. We are your hosts, Agent Kruger, Agent Ether, and Agent Anderson. Come along as we examine UFO sightings, conspiracies, and all things strange. You can follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod. We also have an email address, AlienConPod at ProtonMail.com. We would love to hear from you. And don't forget to check us out on Facebook and Discord. And new Reddit. Links in the description. This week's episode, The Cash Landrum Incident. This has got to be one of the best cases as far as actual evidence goes, if not the best case. It has so much documentation you know, there's photographs of witnesses who, who were hurt by the thing. You have physical evidence, you got documents, you got government investigations. It really has it all. And the first uh, civil lawsuit. Yeah. To my knowledge, there have not been a whole lot of lawsuits involving a UFO. And this is the only one I can think of off the top of my head. Also, before we get started on, the, uh, on this week's case, we got some good news, at least, you know, for the show. I just recently completed filing for the LLC to start this thing as an actual business. And uh, that might not be so good for listeners because we're going to put advertising on there. But that is good for listeners because we can upgrade our equipment. We can do things like have travel expenses and stuff like that. You know, we can Alien go to, Con. Yeah, we can go to like Alien Con and like rent out a table for like meet and greets and I don't know, just stuff. If you have a budget, it just opens a lot of doors for you. But anyways, it's pretty exciting. And um, we have the listenership to do that now. And I really appreciate it. So thanks a million for everybody listening. You guys are really helping us out here. And this is why we do it. When I first started this show, I was amazed to see that, you know, oh my God, 10 people downloaded it this week, or it was 30 people downloading it this week. And now I look at the numbers and it's it's hard to believe how many people are actually listening to this. It's kind of strange to me because I'm not like a celebrity or, you know, a journalist or anything. I'm just like a dude with a microphone, you know, and then uh, other people have joined on the show throughout the years. And uh, now here we are. We've got a legitimate show going. It's kind of kind of crazy. We're rocking and rolling. And in celebration over on our end, we've got... We've got some champagne. champagne. I'm, I'm hoping it doesn't splash all over the place, though, because I got some recording equipment all around it. Like, I'm surrounded by computers <laughs> and recording equipment, so that would be bad. But here, I'll, hopefully you can hear the cork go off. Let's see. There we go. <laughs> all right, let's pour up a glass of this for, for the two job. of us. Good job, good job. So it was an interesting Week last week, we were unable to have our live show because we got a brand new cryptid, and boy, has he been a handful, but he's keeping our other cryptid company. So we'll continue to post pictures of them together on social media so you can ooh and ah over their cuteness. They're little dogs. We have a... Oh my God, my gain. They're adorbs. <laughs> they really are. They're very sweet. Very sweet dogs. We should post a picture yes, of Toby's yes. extra tooth. That's kind of kind of weird looking. Yeah, they got he got uh, his baby canine and his adult canine, and uh, the dentist said we should. Well, the vet said we should uh, have the baby one pulled, so he looks like a little shark or something. Is too many teeth uh, in his mouth. Uh, call him Snaggletooth now. It's weird looking. Yeah, it is kind of weird looking. It That's makes called him character. Unique. Character. No, it's yeah. supposed to be bad though. The vet said it's bad. We have to have it pulled. Yeah, what do they know? Yeah. Think they're a vet? What do they know? All right, we got some dry Italian champagne here. It's pretty delicious. All right, cheers. Cheers. That's a different kind of conspiracy juice this week. Yep. All right, here we go. The Cash Landrum Incident. This all went down on December 29th, 1980 at about 9 p.m. I don't understand why a lot of people say that this happened before the Rendlesham incident, but uh, pretty sure the Rendlesham incident ended on the 28th. So this is after the Rendlesham incident, but there, there are some similarities between the two cases, but we won't go into the Rendlesham on this episode because that one is a whole other can of worms. That's 
That was basically a three-day event. Most of the stuff happened on the first and third days. And it's a lot of a lot of craziness, shenanigans, chasing after light towers and or I mean a lighthouse and or not, depending on who you believe. It's a it's a good one. We'll get to it sooner or later, I guarantee it. But anyways, for the Cash Landrum incident. This involved three main witnesses, Betty Cash, Vicky Landrum, and Vicky's seven-year-old grandson, Colby Landrum. The three were driving home to Dayton, Texas in Cash's Oldsmobile Cutlass. They were driving on a two-lane highway in the woods. It was pretty isolated, and it was one of those roads where you could go for a while without seeing anybody else, and mostly it was only used by locals, so it's not not something you'd see a whole lot of people driving on. And that was the road was FM 1485. I guess FM stands for. Do you, do you know this either? Uh no. It's a real real trivia question. How about you, Agent Kruger? Uh oh no, you got me there. It's not frequency modulation like for a radio station or whatever, you know, like F, FM 1080 such and such radio. So it's actually farm to market, I guess. Huh. Hmm. So yeah, I heard that from another podcast, so take it with a grain of salt, but uh, that's apparently what it means. That's kind of fun. Yeah, a little, yeah. little factoid there for you. No, I wasn't clear. Were they looking for a bingo game or were they on their way home from a bingo game? I've seen different descriptions, but... Um, I thought it was on the way home from it. Yeah, they were either looking for games or they had found one and they had cleaned up and were coming home or they hadn't found one. I'm not really sure. I didn't. In the root and the rough world of bingo. Yeah, they're trolling (laughs) around looking for a good bingo spot. You know, nothing's hitting tonight. That was one detail of the case I didn't really pay a whole lot of attention to because I felt like with, with this case, again, as we often say, but. You could easily do, I don't know, three or four episodes on this one case if you wanted to. So I really had to narrow down my focus on what I wanted to talk about. But yeah, the the bingo, I guess these guys are bingo sharks and they're going and hitting up all the pool halls or the, you know, the shady underground bingo parlors or whatever. Well, I'm just picturing these grandmas dragging around this poor little kid. He's like six years old. And back then, you know, everybody's smoking. So they're indoors, chain smoking, playing bingo. And he's like, well, hiding somebody somewhere has to go around and get the cigarettes. Somebody has to go get the drinks and keep them rolling. You know, <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Hey, back then, who knows, in the 80s, you might have been able to run to the liquor store, you know, like you see in some of those old movies who go, hey, Sonny. Here's a nickel. Go to the store and buy me a pack of cigarettes, you know, or whatever they do in those shows. <laughs> hey, show them what Nana taught you. And it just lights up her cigarette. F. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is in the days before they knew about things like lung cancer, I guess. So the exact location of the incident is not known, only the general area. At least that's what I found. But on the other hand, I did see witnesses who claimed to have seen like burn marks on the road and there's other controversies involving that too but i'll get to that in a little bit so maybe the location's known maybe it's not we're not entirely sure and a lack of radiation right and that's what i i don't believe i bet there was plenty of radiation but well we'll we'll let our boys back we'll let ether talk about that radiation in a little while but um, the, one of the skeptics, uh, I think, I believe it was Philip J class said that, uh, oh, well they're making it up because if there was radiation there, then there would be radiation there still, but that's not really how radiation works, but maybe ether will touch on that later or not because Philip J class is not really worth talking about anyways. So what happened? They were driving on this remote wooded road and they saw a light through the trees in the distance, sort of, you know, above the trees. And they thought that it was a plane coming into land at the nearby Houston Intercontinental Airport. And I think I read that they were something like 30 miles away from that area, give or take. So you would definitely be in the flight line potentially of planes coming and going. You know, you might see them pretty good. They kept driving and a few minutes later, they saw the same light again. But this time it was much closer and much, much brighter. They saw a huge upright diamond-shaped object hovering at treetop level. The top and bottom of the diamond had been cut off. So those the, the top and bottom, they were flat and not pointed. 
And the diamond, if it was a full diamond, the points would be up and down, not like left or right or anything like that. But yeah, it was flat on the top and the bottom. It was a dull metallic silver, and it was about the size of the Dayton Water Tower. Now, I couldn't find how big that is exactly. I've seen water towers that are just like absolutely massive, like the size of a football field. And I've seen these dinky little things that might hold like 50 gallons. So that could mean literally anything. But I did see in an interview where they said it was bigger than their car, easily bigger than their car. So we're talking about a very large object that is very close to the car. If it's at the treetop level, that's not that high. You know, that's who knows, maybe 20 to 50 feet off the ground, maybe something like that, but very, very low to the ground. The object had flames coming from the bottom of it, and the flames would happen periodically, and they would flare out in the shape of a cone, and they gave off a lot of heat. It looked like the thing was being heated up by the flames. So uh, I think I, this Colby said this on one of the interviews. He said it looked like the metal was kind of getting hot, you know, like it would if it had been thrown in the fire or something like that. When the flames turned off, the object floated down towards the road a few feet, and when they turned back on, it would go back up a few feet. And they said that it looked like it was out of control or that it was having trouble staying up in the air. Landrum told Cash to stop the car, fearing that they would be burned if they got closer. And when uh, when Betty, uh, Betty Cash, when she slammed on the brakes... I guess that's when Vicky leaned forward and put her hand on the dashboard and left a print on the vinyl dash. Now, this is an interesting piece of physical evidence because although it's been much talked about and it does help establish that what they saw was very, very hot, um, it's also sort of, there's no pictures of it. And investigators noted seeing the handprint, but I guess nobody took a picture of it. So unfortunately, we don't know for a fact that the handprint actually was there, although we don't really have any reason to doubt the witnesses saying it was there, but just one of these unfortunate things where I wish that we had a picture of that. Like you can find pictures of the car, just not of the handprint, but because of them coming on the object and then stopping or slowing down that quickly, if you had proof that that handprint happened when they said it did, that might give you a way of sort of calculating the heat involved because you could look at the material that that car was built on. That's a very common car. So you could find out, you could find out that year of car, what that was made out of, and you could do tests to figure out how hot it would need to be in order to leave a handprint in the vinyl because some car dashboards are very, very soft, and you'll leave a handprint no matter what. Others are much harder, so you'd have to look look at that particular model of car. Did that car ever disappear? What happened to that car? I couldn't find information on it. Like, wouldn't it still be around? I mean, if it was... I mean, I don't think it would still be around, but I mean, if it was within the family kind of thing, you would think you'd be like, well, this is the famous car, you know? You'd be keep something like that. Yeah, that would be an important piece of information, but unfortunately, I couldn't find anything about the car either. You think it'd be like in a UFO museum or something somewhere. And Agent Ether is pouting at me. What's up, Agent Ether? I'm just sad we don't have the car. We should. It's it's not that long ago, 1980. I mean, it is and it isn't, but it's only like, you know, give or take 40 years. There should be, that car should still be out there somewhere. I mean, there's lots of cars that old that are I, still out, around and driving around. I feel around. like in this day and age, if something like that happened, that, that car would definitely still be around. Right. And I did see on uh, one of the television programs that I watched, they said that the car, uh, well, Betty said that the military tried repeatedly to buy the car from her, but she refused to sell it. I don't know what happened to it after that, but uh, who knows? And that also, they, she didn't say that in an interview. They said that on the show. So they could have been making it up too. Cause these shows sometimes can, uh, embellish things a little bit to make them seem more exciting. So I would take that one with a grain of salt because I didn't see that anywhere else. I only on that one show. So who knows? But anyways, uh, during the event, we'll get back to the event here. When, when they saw the object, um, they, so they'd stopped the car and, uh, cash, uh, Betty and Vicky, they got out of the car to take a look at the object, to take a closer look. Colby was scared and um, pulled Vicky back into the car 
according to some accounts or other accounts, she just went back in to comfort him. This is when, so one of the big things of the case that a lot of people focus on is that uh, Landrum, uh, Vicky Landrum apparently told Kobe that this was the second coming of Jesus and told him that that's Jesus and he will not hurt us. And a lot of people cite this as saying that she had like a religious experience and that she thought it was, you know, Jesus Christ coming or the second coming or whatever. But so I think that this might be something to sort of discredit the witnesses to say, oh, look, they're just, you know, religious nut jobs. And they thought that this thing was Jesus. Obviously, it's not Jesus because Jesus is not a big flying diamond. No, I feel I feel like that would have been not emboldened the situation, but I feel like it would have added more relativeness to that situation, given the fact that. You know, we're a highly religious, you know, country. And in in that part of the country, I would expect somebody to revert to, you know, a holy instance or a situation like that. But way to keep the kid, you know, calm. That would have scared the hell out of me. Like You're seeing a a ship of whatever the heck that is. And you have, you know, somebody next to you going, that's the second coming of Jesus Christ. I'd be I'd be worried. And I'm like, all right, I'm staying in the car. So kudos for the kid. Well, we've said before, too, people try and explain what they see in terms of what they understand. So if something like this is beyond your understanding, you're going to go to your your roots, your core. And if that's your belief, then it, all, it almost makes sense to me that that's how you would interpret it. Right. But when you look at the or when you listen to the interviews and there are there are several there, I guess you could say there are many interviews available for this case depend you know many tv programs recordings phone recordings transcripts whatever when you look through that stuff it doesn't seem to me that vicky was actually actually believed that it was jesus she refers to it as like a solid physical craft and it never anywhere did i see her talking about it being like, you know, this religious experience and she thought Jesus was coming for them or whatever. I think she was just saying that to Colby to try and comfort him because he was seven. He was probably freaked out. So I think that it was more something like that. And I don't think even at the time, I don't think she believed it was Jesus, but who knows? I would believe that with the, you know, he's not here to hurt you statement. Yeah. Yeah. I could get that. Yeah. But uh, yeah, sorry. I didn't mean that. Story vest a little bit. Colby as an adult also describes it as a solid craft and not a religious experience. So, I mean, nobody in the in the statements I could find, nobody is really talking about this as a religious experience. They're all talking about it as a nuts and bolts craft. And they all feel that it was uh, maybe getting a little ahead here, but they don't think it was aliens or anything like that. They feel very strongly or felt very strongly that it was a uh, government aircraft. But anyways, let's continue on with just the basic events of the story. So Betty was staying outside of the car. And here's uh, one. Here's a statement directly from Betty. I got out, walked toward the front of the automobile, and I stood there looking up to try to figure out what this object was. It was a diamond-shaped object. Then at the bottom, flames were shooting out. The heat was tremendous. It just felt like I was burning from the inside out. So yeah. That's a pretty interesting statement. I've been next to some bonfires and stuff and even a jet engine or two in my day, but I've never felt heat that made me feel like I was burning from the inside out. I thought that was a really interesting description. When Betty went to get back into the car, the door handle was so hot that she couldn't grab it. She had to use her jacket to hold the handle to open it so she could get back in. At this point, After she had gotten back into the car, the object ascended and a group of helicopters approached and encircled it, and the object flew away. It it went above like the the treetop level and kind of flew off into the distance. The two women and Colby counted about 23 helicopters, or 22, depending on which one you're talking about. But anything over, I don't know, in a situation like this, when you're seeing something so extraordinary, anything more than five, I think would be somewhat difficult to count exactly because you're not going to be in your right state of mind. But they counted about 23 helicopters and identified some of them as Boeing CH-47 Chinooks. Now, this is an important point because a lot of the skeptics will say, well, hey, the government didn't even own 23 Chinooks at that point in time, which who knows whether or not that's true. But the thing is, they didn't say 23 Chinooks. They said 
Some of them were the twin rotor Chinooks. They didn't never said all 23 were. They said they counted 23 helicopters, some of which were CH-47 Chinooks. And at the if you look at the statements, they didn't know what a B what a Boeing CH-47 was. They just said a twin rotor helicopter. So they didn't identify it specifically, but they did but say I mean, they what s- else could it have been, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's what it probably what it was. But they also said they saw like military insignias on the sides of them too. So the object flew off. I found that interesting, yeah. And Betty drove on in the car. And as she drove on, she glimpsed the object in the distance from time to time. Now the encounter, hey, 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 get away from my soundboard. He's trying to eat my soundboard. Okay. (laughs) Who doesn't? Who doesn't try? I mean, hey, I always try to get near it. You swap me away. This guy is in a mood today. I tell you what. All right, anyways, so the encounter from the first sighting lasted about 20 minutes. So from when they very first sighted the object and then they drove on and they saw it. So they, I didn't see an exact time as to how how long they were close to the actual object, you know, when they had to stop. But it probably wasn't that long based on their description. I'm guessing like two or three minutes or less, like not that long. Had to be. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was not that long at all. So they went home, and that evening, all three of the main witnesses experienced similar symptoms. Betty had it the worst, probably because she was outside of the car for the longest. Absorbed, and, yeah. In like a direct line of sight. Colby was actually hiding underneath the dashboard of the car. So he was protected and shielded from like all the metal and things from the car. And uh, Vicky was looking at it through the windshield of the car. So she had it the second worst. And if it was radiation, that would make sense because metal would block radiation better than glass, supposedly. I don't know. I'm not a scientist. And wouldn't, weren't, weren't they using lead-based paints back in the day? So, I mean. Yeah, well, I don't know if they were doing that in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you have to go back a little further than that. But maybe Ether will talk about the radiation angle in a little bit. I don't know. No, you're not. You're not going to. I don't. Uh, my notes are not of that. Well, I would imagine you do know a little bit about radiation, sure. though. So maybe you could speak a little bit about that. But the basic idea is that uh, radiation is blocked more from certain things and less from others, apparently. I don't know. I'm not a scientist, and I don't work with radiation <laughs> like Agent Ether does. Their symptoms were nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, fatigue, a burning sensation in their eyes, and they felt like they had a sunburn. Betty's symptoms worsened over the next few days, and she developed large, painful blisters all over her skin. And when I say all over, I mean all over. There's descriptions of her eyelids swelling up and then bursting, you know, blisters inside of her mouth, on her ears, everywhere. And her hair was falling out in clumps. When the blisters formed, a clear liquid, when they burst, a clear liquid would come out. She went to the hospital on January 3rd. By then, she couldn't walk and had lost large patches of her skin. And her hair was... You can look up the picture. Like, she's got, like, bald patches and stuff. And you can see these blisters. So, that's what I mean. Like, when I say this is a really good documented case, you can actually see pictures of her injuries if you care to Google it, which... Uh, not that much fun to Google that sort of thing, but hey. Well, you <laughs> I'll know, throw it in the Discord right now. It's interesting that you... You talk about those symptoms. I mean, those are classic symptoms of radiation. Like if you're a patient, you're getting radiation treatment, you're going to experience hair loss and fatigue and maybe some blistering. Um, but all the information we have about radiation sickness comes from nuclear accidents or from, you know, uh, Chernobyl, those sort of incidences. So I feel like we really have a limited amount of data to work with as far as the human experience when being exposed to specific types of radiation. And who knows? Who knows what kind of radiation there was, if it was ionizing or non-ionizing and what effect it would have on on these people. Right. Yeah, if this is a type of radiation that nobody had ever been exposed to before, at least not that we know of. So part of the problem with the idea that this is radiation poisoning, even though you can find doctors in interviews or not in interviews, just in documents and investigations or in interviews who have come out and said this, the progression of this illness matches exactly what you would expect from radiation poisoning. Right. Except 
they, they don't die. Right. That's the, that's the thing. If in order to experience these symptoms, you would need basically a fatal dose of radiation. But as Ether was just saying, we don't know what kind of radiation it was. There are certain kinds of radiation that don't have any sort of penetration and at worst would just make your skin flaky a little bit, but wouldn't actually hurt you at all. There's other types of radiation, and maybe this is a type that we don't know about that would be able to do this without killing you. Who knows? We don't know. And as Ether was saying, we don't have a large sample size as to how people react to radiation poisoning in each type. So it's sort of an unknown. But because it's generally believed that radiation would need to kill somebody to cause these symptoms, a lot of people think that it might have actually been chemical poisoning of some kind. Because if we're talking about like a chemical fuel or rocket, that might match the symptoms better than radiation. If this was a government aircraft, we know for a fact that they were developing nuclear-powered aircraft at some point, but the government says, oh, we gave up on that, we couldn't make it work, the engine was too heavy, blah dee blah dee blah But of course, if they had something nuclear-powered, they would never admit to it anyways. So it's not like a reliable statement from the government to say that, oh yeah, oh, we never developed a nuclear-powered aircraft, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you know? So that is one possibility, but... On the other hand, it seems kind of silly to develop an engine that would just irradiate the crap out of the whole area <laughs> as it was flying around and taking well, off and landing. And what about everybody in the helicopters? Right, exactly, yeah. Although if if this was like a, an emergency sort of a thing, they would send those people out in the helicopters and they would be irradiated and then that would be that. It would be classified and nobody would ever find out about it, right? And uh, don't don't think for an instant that our government hasn't irradiated our troops before. <laughs> It's happened. We know it's happened. So if there's, you know, if there's something that they need to go and isolate, some sort of UFO that's run away, if it's ours or somebody else's, who knows? If they need to go and get this thing, they're not going to be concerned about troops being irradiated. They're just going to be like, no, get in those helicopters, go find it, and, you know, grab it and come back. And the, well, and, yeah, I, go ahead. I just wanted to add on to that, uh, how there could be like an aerosol or something that was emitting from that flame that was shooting out of the craft itself is that there's planes today that actually like in Russia, they have that, that supersonic, uh, aircraft, that bomber, that TU 160 or whatnot, but like on takeoff, it, uh, mic- like the gases that are used in the engine to propel it, actually it emits like a deadly poison, like a forgot not like a boreon gas or whatever but like it's it's like really dark and like really uh, like sulfur like and you can see it plain as day when it's taking off it's just this yellow gas that comes off its chemtrail and it's just it's crazy but if you're standing like directly near it or at all you're gonna (laughs) it's gonna not be good for you so yeah but i don't know maybe it was early early testing of a craft that you know could have produced that and then they were just like all those helicopters are kind of just you know, seeing this poor son of a gun that's behind the, the stick of that said craft, like losing control of it and or whatnot, you know, accidentally hitting a couple and like a, or hitting people in a car and they're like, oh shit, oh, oh gotta go. Like <laughs> d- different area, dip out of there. Yeah. So we have here, I mean, there's, you can find a ton of different statements, especially because of the court case, which Ether will talk about maybe in a little bit. There's all sorts of depositions and, radio interviews and all sorts of stuff you can find for this case. But one thing that I liked was Vicky's statement because it's nice and short and uh, we can read it to you. This is so Vicky called the national UFO reporting center in Seattle, Washington. And you can actually find this recording online. The reason I was thinking about playing it instead, just, you know, kind of like cleaning it up a little bit because it's got a lot of what sounds like tape hiss but the reason why I decided to um, read it instead was because Vicky actually has a, a pretty thick accent, and I felt that it might be difficult for some listeners to hear what she's saying because it's a pretty thick accent. I had trouble understanding yeah. what she was saying. Yeah, so it's just, you know, got that nice Texas accent. It sounds nice, but you can't always tell what she's saying, and she speaks pretty fast. Yeah, because she's probably upset. Yeah, so we're going to read this to you. Agent Ether will play the part of Vicky Landrum, 
and I'm going to play the part of R.G. or Robert Gribble of the National UFO Reporting Center. All right, here we go. Yes, sir. This is Vicki Landrum from Dayton, Texas. Yes. Uh, a deal came down, and it was like fire coming from it. Uh-huh. It got ahead of us, and we had to stop, and we got out of the car, which I didn't stay out but just a minute because I had my little grandson with me, which I got custody of, and I got back in the car. There was nothing happened to me, but my eyes is burned. But but Betty Cash, that was with me that night, not started coming, and she had a real terrible headache, and so she's been in Parkview Hospital over two weeks. I got her out. She stayed two weeks, and I had to put her back, and all of her hair has come out. They can't find out exactly what is wrong with her. They keep saying it, it could be this or it's possibly that, but instead of her getting better, she's getting worse, and it could have had anything to do with that thing we stood and watched because we were close enough to it that we felt a fire from it. How close do you feel you were to that? Uh, I'd be safe to say it wasn't more than maybe a block and a half from it. It lit up the whole element, and I thought that the world was coming to an end. I really did. I told my grandson not to be afraid, that if he saw something coming out of it, that it would be Jesus. I thought that way I could explain to him to keep him from going into... Oh, yeah. Okay, so... (laughs) (laughs) So, the, 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 um... The recording said the transcript of the recording says uh, after she says I thought that way I could explain to him to keep him from going into and then it says in brackets unclear uh, a little failure heart failure or possibly hysteria so you can't really tell what she says right there and then continuing on was this a fairly large object yes sir would it be larger than your car yes sir and did it land on the ground no sir it came down almost to the treetops. And then it went back up and went to the right of us, and we counted 23 helicopters. It might have been more. Come on, 1960 over here. Uh Uh-huh. We counted those helicopters up there, so there had to be somebody that knew about it. It was because from that, I don't want her to die. I want her to get better. What roadway were you on at the time? We was on the cutoff road, something called New Caney and Huffman Road, my name's Vicki Landrum, and her name is Betty Cash, and she's in Parkview Hospital. Now, one of her doctors believes that we've got some radiation, but he is not positive. He'd taken her blood, and it didn't show up in any of her blood, but in less than two weeks' time, she lost all her hair except down there at the bottom. And she has she had hair that you wouldn't believe, and, I mean, this is not a hoax. I'm not calling you for a hoax. Call the Parkview Hospital and verify what I'm telling you. I'm not putting you on. I wish somebody would go to the hospital and see that lady. We're going to see if we can't get some help for you, and they'll call ahead of time and make an appointment. I I mean, I've been afraid to call, afraid that somebody would think I was, you know, that it was a hoax. But since she's got had to go back into the hospital for the same thing and she's not getting any better, I have to have help somewhere. If she don't, she's going to die. Okay, we're going to do everything we can to help. Okay, thank you a lot. Thank you. And that's the end of the call. And that was the first sort of where, you know, it started to get into the public realm where people started to find out about it. Yeah, so uh, after after the UFO Reporting Center, they took the report and passed it to, what is it, APRO, APRO, the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization in Tucson, Arizona, And uh, William English was the first UFO investigator to contact the witness. Unfortunately, he just went right along and sold the story to a tabloid, Weekly World News. And Dick Donovan wrote the story based on taped statements from the witnesses. How dare you? (laughs) The Weekly World News is the most reliable reporting in the world. So what I meant to say was... It's great. He released this to the public. He went to the Weekly World News and he got the word out. I actually, they have the... Wait, wait, hold up there a second. If you go right to their website, it says right on their website, the Weekly World News is the world's only reliable news. Only. Only. Non-bias. Only reliable news. I actually found the actual article, though, okay. online, which is really which is really cool. It's uh, exclusive, and the title <laughs> emblazoned on the front is Three Survive UFO Attack. The tell of nightmare encounter with spacecraft. Just 
just to give you an idea of some of the weekly world news's current headlines, um, we have five ways to protect yourself from leprechaun shenanigans on St. Patrick's Day, <laughs> PhD apes new economic theory of success, man can spin his head 360 degrees, eight U.S. senators are aliens, <laughs> the return of Bob Stradamus, and Kangorus awakens, and it looks like a big giant cross between a kangaroo and uh, Godzilla. <laughs> <laughs> This is, this is a, uh, I got to, this, yeah, I definitely have to explore this website. This place looks awesome. You know what I read is that this was actually, it's it's a really good case. Like you said, it's, it has a lot of, you know, evidence and details, but that unfortunately, because of the way it was presented to the public and the way it was released to tabloids and the fact that when it went through the courts, the whole case was just dismissed for lack of evidence. A lot of people just don't take it seriously. Right. Yeah. Well, as far as the court case goes, I'm not really surprised about that. Sort of a spoiler alert. Uh, Agent Ether was supposed to talk about that in a bit, but but um, you're going up against Uncle Sam. You know, do you think they're they're the ones deciding if they're going to pay you out? It'd be like if you came to my front door and knocked on my front door, and you're like, "Hey, uh, you get to decide if you're going to pay me a million dollars. You can pay me a million dollars." I'm like, "No, I'm not going to pay you a million dollars. Get out of here." You know. Well, it's not really a spoiler alert because if I think somebody had been awarded twenty million dollars for UFO damages, we'd probably all know about it. Yeah, wasn't it twenty-one million dollars? I. It was a lot of money, and lot that's back then. So nowadays, well, you know, and a lot of skeptics use that number to discredit the witnesses because they were just after money, apparently. But they actually, the the um, ladies did not come up with that number. A lawyer came up with that number. Right. Who was going to take a lot of that they, money. They lost a lot of money. They didn't have good medical insurance, if any medical insurance at all. They were paying this, you know, out of pocket. They were staying in the hospital for weeks, or at least Betty was. And actually, Betty had a restaurant that she had to close down because she could not keep it open after this. She was too sick to run it. And, uh, it, I mean, it was a huge financial burden for everybody involved. Um, and well, plus just think about it this way. If you're going to try to scam somebody, are you going to try to scam the U S government and sue them because of a UFO? Does that seem like a likely scenario that somebody's going to pull off is like a scam artist? It's just ridiculous. It's, I mean, so anyways, yeah, the, the number that they're asking for in the court case was not them. It was the lawyer said, okay, we could probably get this based on, Whatever calculations lawyers use, I'm not sure what that is because I am not one of them. But they, uh, for damages and suffering and all that stuff, they came up with that number, 21 million. And in 1980, that was probably like half the GDP, you know, because <laughs> <laughs> of inflation, but whatever. All right. So anyways, there were a couple of other witnesses to the case. So it wasn't just these three main witnesses. There was a Dayton police detective, Lamar Walker, and his wife. They saw 12 of the helicopters in the area, but they did not see the large diamond-shaped objects. They said that the helicopters had searchlights like they were looking for something, and that's kind of an important detail, I think. Jerry McDonald saw the diamond-shaped object. He said it looked like an acetylene torch was coming out of the back of the object. His description is a little bit different. He drew a picture, and it kind of looks like a triangle-shaped craft with two flames coming out of the back. He said he got nausea after the sighting, but he did say it was diamond-shaped with bright lights on it and a red light in the middle. Now, his by his description, it sounds like it was flying overhead with the front and back of the diamond maybe pointing, uh, you know, maybe instead of up and down, maybe it's um, perpendicular to the ground. Perpendicular? Parallel? No, parallel. Yeah, parallel to the ground. So it's um, it's going in a different, it's flying differently. It's not just hovering up and down. It's flying, you know, like back and forth. So that's sort of an interesting description there. There was an, a guy named John Schusler uh, who investigated the case, and I won't go into all his stuff, but one thing that's interesting is he went and questioned a bunch of people in the area, and he found at least 10 other people that had seen the UFO and more, even more that had seen the helicopters. But, um... The, unfortunately, with this case, a lot of the people did not want to be identified personally, and they did not want to go on record as actually having seen that. So that's unfortunate because we do have multiple independent witnesses of the UFO, but unfortunately, they're anonymous, which means 
that's kind of hard to verify them. Even though John Schusler does seem like a trustworthy investigator, we can't say definitively that there are 10 different witnesses that saw this thing because we don't know exactly who they were. So that number could be exaggerated or whatever. It's a, it's an unfortunate part of the case, but there are multiple witnesses and you can even go online and see people who are posting, you know, Oh, I was a kid when this happened. And I remember people who saw the helicopters and people who saw the UFO and like that kind of stuff. So it just, it depends on, you know, uh, if the internet's not really trustworthy, they could be making it up, but they do seem like genuine statements on the other hand. So there is another sort of controversy is that uh, the road in the area. So it's, they supposedly found the road in the area and the show UFO hunters was even taking samples from the roads to see if it was actually repaved because a lot of witnesses said that they saw people in unmarked black vehicles remove and repave damaged parts of the road where the UFO was seen because supposedly the UFO left like black scorch marks on the road and you can find the statements from the people in the area. So here's one statement that I found online. We lived probably two miles away. None of the adults I knew saw the craft, but all of them saw the helicopters. They say that all of a sudden there were a ton of helicopters flying around that night. There was also a burnt spot on the road that was replaced shortly after. Hmm. So you can find witness statements that, that talk about the road, and that's kind of interesting. But of course, that begs the question... Wouldn't they? Wouldn't the object have burned the crap around uh, out of the trees in the area as well? And I didn't see any discussion of burned trees, which kind of makes me wonder why not. What does that mean? I don't know. In April of 1981, Vicky and Colby saw a Chinook helicopter flying towards Dayton, Texas, and followed it. It landed for the Future of Farmers of America livestock show. Vicky spoke with a pilot who said that he had been in the area before chasing a UFO. When she said that she was burned by the UFO, the pilot made them leave and refused to talk any further about it. This sighting re uh, received international coverage. Vicky appeared on That's Incredible in 1981. In 1989, Vicky and Betty both appeared on the TV special UFO Cover-Up. Unsolved Mysteries did a segment and uh, UFO, UFO Hunters did a segment on it or a show on it. And there's actually a lot more TV shows. That's just sort of the highlights. But all right. So that's the basic case in a nutshell. You could go into a lot more detail than that. But I'll turn it over right now to Agent Ether for uh, sort of like the legal stuff and anything else she might want to talk about for the case. Well, after this whole event and they had, they had contacted, you know, different... Uh, news outlets and had reported it to the UFO Reporting Center in, in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, they went ahead and approached Senators Lloyd Benson and John Tower in Texas to try and figure out what they should, should do about that. I don't know if they were just seeking compensation at this point or if they just wanted to get the word out. I'm not sure what their motivation was, but they did uh, approach them, and the senator suggested they file a complaint at the Judge Advocate Claims Office at the Bergstrom Air Force Base, which was seven miles southeast of Austin, Texas. And I was looking up uh, from what I saw, they were they were looking for some way to pay for their medical bills because they had a lot of medical bills, and that's why they were contacting people. That makes sense, actually. Yeah, medical bills, even back then, they were expensive. So I was looking up some some facts about these these senators, and uh, one interesting was that uh, ben, Benson won an electoral vote as a VP with Dukakis against Bush in 1988. There was this faithless elector from West Virginia, Margaret Faye Riggins Leach, and she was against this winner-take-all electoral system. So even though she promised that she would vote for the person who had the most votes, she went ahead and gave one electoral vote to Benson. Now, Tower, on the other hand, was a Republican, and he was the first Republican senator elected to Texas since the Reconstruction era in the 1800s. So I just thought that was really interesting. So they took their claim uh, down to the advocate's office, and they recommended that they go ahead and get a, a lawyer 
And so they did. And they were looking for uh, damages, you know. So they got a lawyer, and then he took their case pro bono. It was Peter Gersten. And he was a criminal defense trial attorney in New York for 25 years before becoming director for the Citizens Against UFO Secrecy. And it was popular because they would use the FOIA to go ahead and try and sue the U.S. government for UFO docs. And they were actually successful, I think, in 1977. And they went to the to sue the U.S. District Court in 1977. And then in January of 1980, uh, the CIA would release 900 pages of documents, and there would be an additional 239 documents that were referenced that couldn't be released for national security reasons. And Peter Gersten would come to be known as the UFO lawyer. So he would go on not only to take this case, but to take additional cases and continue to try and get information about UFOs out to the general public. So the, the government was sued for $20 million. They took testimony from NASA, the Air Force, the Army, the Navy. There was a huge military investigation and it was headed by Lieutenant Colonel George Saran, but in the end they found no evidence, and in 1986 the whole case was dismissed by Judge Ross Sterling. And that was sort of the end of the civil lawsuit portion, even though, as Agent Anderson said, they would go on to make guest appearances on various uh, TV shows. There was some media coverage. There was a reporter, Kathy Gordon, who became quite close to the gals. She was the first mainstream reporter to to break the case, and she would go ahead and detail interviews, and she would cover the case as it climbed through the courts. But a lot of the media coverage was very sensationalized, very much, you know, National Enquirer kind of feeling to it, not really taking it very seriously, a lot of opinion pieces, um, you know, yeah, so I don't know. I feel like it wasn't followed su- super closely by mainstream media. It was more by these sort of uh, independent newspapers. It did hit some pretty good shows. Like, yeah, that's incredible. Maybe not quite as reputable, but Unsolved Mysteries? No, I was saying the court case, though. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. The, the, the court case wasn't followed closely by mainstream media. Right, okay. Only only the main story was mm-hmm. on, yeah. I do have one more one more tidbit, though, that's not related to the court cases. While I was digging around on the interwebs, I ran across someone, uh, Frederick L. Whitting, and I couldn't find him in the who's who of the Cash Landrum case files anywhere. And I think he's just someone who requested the release of information regarding this case uh, to the Pentagon through the FOIA Act. And there's just uh, pages and pages of documents that got released information regarding the incident. He asked very specifically in a letter for all printed material, audio, video recordings, the investigational case file from Saren, he asks for any serious incident reports or SIRs on extended military involvement and all records produced by the Army Assistant Chief of Staffs for Intelligence Office. Yeah, um, writing FOIA requests is sort of an art form. Anybody interested in, in more details on that? Because I think it's actually really interesting. Should check out the Black Vault, and that's uh, by John Greenwald Jr. He has a website where he hosts... I don't know, probably 2 million documents or whatever, like a ton of documents that have been released through FOIA. And he also has a podcast where he talks about certain things. Sometimes he has guests, but sometimes he talks about the ins and outs of FOIA requests. And it's pretty interesting, like the whole process. He'll go through a FOIA request and sometimes it'll take him years to get a result. And sometimes he gets no result at all. Sometimes he gets really interesting results. I think it's def- definitely worth checking out in, if you're interested in this kind of topics. Well, the inspector general who answered the request basically said, um, 
no. (laughs) (laughs) Those records are sealed and they're exempt for security reasons. And he said, but here's what I will give you. And he released pages of almost unintelligible handwritten notes, some names like key players and identifying information like phone numbers, and a statement that basically said the incident wasn't substantiated and there was no evidence that the army was involved. Yeah, that's that's one thing I find hilarious is the government says, ah, that those weren't our helicopters. Well, it's like, all right, hold on. A lot of people in the area saw those helicopters. Whose helicopters were they? Was that like, I don't know, the local sandwich shop has 23 Chinooks they use for, develop, for uh, delivering sandwiches? I don't think so. What, a construction company? Nah, that's the military. Logging company? Yeah. Yeah, nobody has 23 helicopters. <laughs> that's definitely the military. And the last page says, this is a final response to your request to the Assistant Secretary of Defense for information regarding the incident in Dayton. This inquiry is completed. Your allegations that the Army, National Guard, or Reserve has helicopters involved can't be substantiated. Interviews were conducted with victims and other persons thought to have information. They went on to say no evidence was found and no Army helicopters were involved. Again, Army helicopters right well even if they were army helicopters which we don't know for a fact that they were but if they were army helicopters if this was a classified operation they would not tell you about it anyways that's exactly what they say if it was classified which i hate to say that because it comes under the the good old classic like well they're denying it so it must be true kind of a thing but i mean it's a fact that if that was a classified action and they were not releasing the information, then they would deny it anyways. It's just, it's just how it works. So there's a few pages of just random handwritten notes. So I'm just going to take a couple snippets I found interesting. They mentioned Travis Air Force Base. Okay. I don't know why. Uh, they mentioned Project Blue Book. And in quotes, it says, the UFO doesn't exist. Interesting. Yeah. Well, Project Blue Book had been closed by this time, by the way. It was clo- it had been closed for about 10 years at this point. So it's kind of strange they would mention it. And then there, there's a one little side note. It says helicopters backslash unusual, and that's underlined. Hmm. You can find these documents online, and this is why I always suggest anybody who's really interested in the topic to go through the documents themselves because you can find some really interesting stuff in there that may not necessarily be a smoking gun, but really, really interesting stuff that you kind of have to be like, hmm, why is that there? That doesn't look like it should be there. Then there's something that just says, that's incredible with a phone number. (laughs) Did, Did you call this phone number? No, I thought about it, but I figured, you know... It was so long ago. I don't want to Should harass do right these now? people. Do the, <laughs> yeah, do Skype real quick. We're we're talking about a phone number from the eighties. Oh so. uh, yeah, there's actually there's a bunch of phone numbers. I'm assuming these are witnesses. They have um, army designations like Colonel, LTC, Major, um, usually just last names, and then uh, a phone number. I'm guessing LTC might be Lieutenant Colonel. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. They're all military personnel. I'm assuming that they've interviewed. In relation yeah. to this case, and there's like a whole page of them with just uh, just phone numbers. That's uh, I saw that report. I didn't have time to read it, especially because Agent Ether said she was going to read it. So I was like, all right, cool. I can skip this one because there's, <laughs> oh my God, there's so much for this case. It's unbelievable how much there is for this case. So yeah, I'll put a link to that on social media. There's, oh, there's just so much out there. When I was, when I was researching this, I always tell myself, I'm just going to dedicate one or two hours, and then I end up spending half the day looking at things related to whatever we're going to be talking about. But this one was so much fun. Well, but isn't that the best, though, when you really go down the rabbit hole and, you know, you think, oh, this case will be easy to research. It's a pretty much open and shut, cut and dry thing. Just do the basic description. And then the more you look into it, the more you find. And then you just keep going and going. And you're like, oh, look, at I didn't see this before. And you just find out so much stuff about it. It's, just, it's one of those cases where, I mean, there's just so much information available. It, it just really never ends for this one. And there's a great MUFON report. It's 35 
pages. It's written by, who was it, John Schusler, you were talking about earlier. Yeah. And uh, there's there's a couple of details in there that, that we didn't discuss on air that I, that I thought were really interesting. Okay. Like what? Well, I don't want to go into all of them, but Vicky said she felt it was not unnatural. So like you said, she thought it was some sort of U.S. government uh, object. She thought maybe it was transporting or escorting something dangerous. Hmm. And this is funny because in her interview with uh, the the Weekly World News, she described it as an unholy flame-belching UFO. Yeah, that's... Uh, but... Yes. <laughs> that's how... I feel like that's how somebody especially a Christian might, it might describe it. Right. Um, I'm not sure that that necessarily means that she thinks it's literally an unholy thing. No, or I'm just that's saying just... that the reports differ so much when it's sensationalized in a tabloid versus something that I think is more in a report format, more, I want to say scholarly. Cause I mean, it is move on, but Done as more of a documentational sort of style. Oh, right, right. You know, that sort of element. It's just, it has a, a different feel to it. Yeah. What I found interesting of this case was the just the, the ship shape and that aerosol um, type of, you know, like how they could have possibly gotten poison or any of the gases that could have emitted from it. Because we've seen whether some have been confirmed or, you know, have been confirmed videos that show unidentified flying objects like they tend to come into those type of shapes like whether it be a diamond or a triangle or some sort of like elongated triangle one of the interesting details of this case there are some similarities to other sightings particularly the rendlesham sighting which happened you know just a couple days before or you know one to three days before and uh, one of the interesting details that uh, one of the descriptions for the Cash Landrum incident, I forget which, but one of the witnesses said they saw something like dripping from the object. And in the Rendlesham case, they one of the witnesses also, I'm a little rusty on that case. I haven't looked into it for a long time. But one of the witnesses also said that they saw something dripping from the object and that, like, the drips evaporated Dripping. before they hit the ground or something like that. Uh, I'm going from memory here and not very good memory, so I can't say exactly, but there are some similarities between this case and other cases, such as the Rendlesham case. What do you think that, uh, that whatever that substance would be sp spilling off? I mean, it could it be like liquid nitrogen, maybe if it were to be man made, would it be something that? The engines are running so hot that it has to be cooled off with just tremendous amounts of nitrogen or something like that, and it's dispensing it. I, I don't know. Like, Well, whatever the technology was, it seemed kind of crude just from the description. Right. I mean, compared to when we're talking about other UFO sightings, this just seemed like a, a really crude sort of vehicle and so i agree i don't think it was uh extraterrestrial right that's where i was about to say is that i i do feel like leaning it towards a man-made type of re not reverse engineered type of situation but maybe something close to it but i don't know something something of our own too it definitely you know they're always saying not one of ours i think this time it was one of ours yeah that's what the witnesses said and by their descriptions, if if you're traveling the stars, you're not using it. You're not, I mean, if you're traveling the stars, you're not going to get there with, you know, like a rocket or something. It's just, you're not going to have like a fuel source because they've done the calculations and it turns out you would need so much fuel that you would, I forget the exact number, but, you know, you would need like more fuel than like you could like the size of the earth or something, you know, like more fuel than we could <laughs> yeah, ever get our hands amount. on. It's just a ridiculous amount of fuel to get from here to there to you know even the closest star. It would just take just too much. But if it's like a like a military craft, like an experimental military craft of some kind, that would make sense because that's what this thing, how it kind of performed, right? If it 
some UFOs, they perform like stuff that we don't have, that we never had, and that we still don't have. But some of them, like this one, this one performed like something that we have. You know, the way it maneuvered and stuff. This seems like something that could be a terrestrial object. As well as the way it would be, you know, kind of chaperoned by people that would want to make sure that test pilot is safe or you know what I mean as soon as he goes down because it's so sporadic or that thing is so uncontrollable that they had a long like a you know a line of helicopters to make sure that they covered a wide radius so they can swoop in fast enough to pick up the pieces and him and get the heck out of there right then again it wasn't a military helicopter right there was nothing there we're crazy now that's the interesting thing how one of the witnesses said that he that he saw the helicopters but not the UFO and this was this was the police officer the off-duty police officer and his right. wife Lamar Walker remember he said he saw the helicopters with searchlights as if they were looking for something on the ground now i mentioned briefly earlier i mentioned this but to me that suggests that if they're looking for something, they don't know exactly where it is, but they have a general idea and they don't know if it's crashed or if it's still in the air. But the fact that they sent Chinook helicopters, those are like cargo helicopters and they can lift up heavy objects off the ground. So this suggests that they didn't know where it was, except they had a very general idea and they were sending helicopters there that they think might they might need these helicopters to lift up something very heavy. What does this sound like to you? Because to me, this sounds like an experimental aircraft that had a malfunction and flew off course. And the ladies and the boy saw it, and they said it looked like something that was having trouble staying in the air. And that's exactly what I think it was. Right, yeah. And those flames are stabilizing it somehow, or at least trying to at that moment. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I think that this was some sort of government test craft that had veered off course, and they didn't know where it was, and they sent the helicopters to chase it down. And that's pretty much what what it was. I mean, that's what the evidence seems to point to, and we have really good evidence for this case. But you're never going to have the government admitting to any sort of liability with this sort of thing. Oh, never. They because admit to that? Come on. It's not just this case. It's bigger than this case. <laughs> if they admit to liability in this case, that opens up Pandora's box, and now they're liable for all sorts of other stuff. So unfortunately, they have to deny that this was them, that they were involved. They have to try to make the witnesses look like they were crazy and that it didn't really happen, or maybe they were making it up, and it's all a hoax, and maybe it's some kind of gimmick to try to get money out of the government, (laughs) because, you know, every scam artist out there who's trying to get money out of the government is going to claim that a UFO burned them up. (laughs) Right, That sounds like something that would actually work in the court of law, right? (laughs) But yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm still trying to push my, my claim through, all right? They came over. They smashed my windows out. Like, it's all their fault. Like, come on. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's kind of my idea of this case is that I think that the witnesses really did see something. They really did encounter an object and it really did injure them. And I think it was a government craft. And that's pretty much what I think about this case. I agree. Totally agree. Yeah. If I'm summing up my thoughts, I go back to little Colby. I think of the children and uh, specifically, you know, His grandma gave all sorts of statements about how he felt and what he did. And she mentions like night terrors and bedwetting. And I'm just thinking that's forever. That's always going to be in like newspapers and media. And when people talk about this case, they're going to talk about poor little Colby. And uh, maybe they should have left him out of it. Yeah. He's, He's just a kid. Although, to be fair, when I did see him in the 2009 UFO Hunters episode... Sure. He seemed like he was doing okay. A doctor examined him and didn't find any like super horrible permanent things on him. And But he, the trauma, the trauma the, agent. Yeah. The trauma actually is probably something that he's had to live with his entire life, uh, which is unfortunate. And I think that's, yeah, I mean, I can't imagine going through something like that. But 
at the very least, when I, when I saw him on the show, he looked like physically fit. He looked like he was in, you know, good physical condition and he was doing pretty good, which I think is a great thing because, um, at the very least, at least he didn't suffer permanent damage that would prevent him from dealing with the psychological things he had to go through. He still got a life, you know, and as far as I know, he's still alive, but he still got a life to do stuff. You know, Betty and Vicky also lived a decent lifespan, but they, Vicky, no, no, I think it was Betty that got breast cancer and Vicky got a cataract that they had to deal with, which they believe is a result of this thing. But, and, and also, we, I don't think we spoke about it that much, but throughout their lives, they had reoccurring and permanent effects from this that they believe was from something like radiation poisoning that they had to deal with. But um, at least uh, at least poor little Colby seems like he was doing okay physically. So even if it would mentally have fucked him up, at least he had the opportunity <laughs> to deal with it. Because, you know, if you have something traumatic happen to you and then you're dead you're dead. <laughs> you know, if you have something traumatic happen to you and then you get to survive and then deal with that trauma, that's sort of in a way a blessing in disguise, a silver lining, I guess. If sure. You know. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Bruh. If I'm trying, you know, it's kind of what I'm getting at there. <laughs> <laughs> what a case. It's a good one. And I know we say this so often, but I really mean it with this case. We're only scratching the surface on this one. You can find so much more evidence on this case. There's just so much we haven't talked about because with this show, we try to keep it somewhere in the ballpark of an hour. So when I'm doing my notes, that's what I aim for. And quite often we overshoot pretty much every time we overshoot because with these cases, there's just so much to look into. But, um, it, well, in this case, we're actually, well, we're going a little long here, but uh, I was expecting ETA to talk a little bit about it as well. So I, I kind of kept my notes short and we're still going over by a little bit here. But man, there's just so much to get into. And I think if if anybody listening is, if there's a UFO case that you, you ever wanted to do extra reading or extra research and you haven't ever before, this might be a good one to do that with because there's so much to read up on. You can read about, you know, there's plenty of skeptical explanations. There's plenty of, you know, documents and interviews. And there's just so much to this case that it really doesn't ever, never ends. Well, it, I guess at some point it ends, but I feel like we could do many, many episodes on this one. Maybe five or ten episodes easily on all the minutiae involved in this case. Although I'm not sure anybody would actually want to listen to all that stuff. <laughs> All right. So before we wrap it up here, I'd like to give a shout out to our live audience here on Discord. I haven't been, yeah. uh, people have been coming and going, and it is an awkward time for a lot of people to listen to, but we do have currently in the audience Mashuka, Mr. Punk, Flower 80, Beowulf. And I think earlier I saw Olivia was in there for a bit. She was? Yeah. So shout out to all those people. And I think there were a couple other people who came and went. Unfortunately, I didn't, I don't really remember their names because, you know, focusing on the show and stuff, but thanks so much. I really appreciate the live audience. It makes it, it gives the show a different feel, you know, like you're actually talking to somebody. So I really appreciate you guys. Thanks for showing up. But anyway, so I guess that's pretty much all we had for this week. Anybody have a, uh, you guys all pretty much said your piece on this one? I'm all tuckered out from all the champagne. All the champagne. All the celebrating. All right. Well, Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you could really help us out by leaving us a good review wherever you listen to podcasts and suggesting the show to your friends. Keep it strange.